Hey, so we're continuing in a series that we've called rather, it's about relationships. And as John and I were trying to think, okay, you know, John came to me, he's like, I want to do a series on relationships, but I'm trying to figure out what we should call it. And I said, how about relationships? He said, yeah, that's it. So that's what we're doing. We're continuing on relationships. And John has had some great insights along the way. I mean, the first week was just brilliant, you know, that the one part in every relationship you can control is you. You're the one constant in all of your relationships. So if you want better relationships, probably the starting point needs to be us. And then we've had a number of weeks of just really, he's done a great job of keeping our eyes kind of on the horizon and giving us a vision for the way that we can go with our words, the way we listen, the way we interact with each other, and gave us a a really great vision for how our relationships can be. Well, today, I want to go a little bit the other direction and talk about what to do when our relationships are not the way we want them to be. When we find ourselves in a difficult situation, when we find ourselves in conflict. Now, conflict is not necessarily bad. You know, the reality is, is that in this life, each of us, our knowledge is partial, we can misunderstand, we can not get what's going on sometimes. And when we're trying to figure out together what we should do, Oftentimes, there'll be different ideas about what the next step is. There'll be different ideas about how we ought to relate to each other. And so conflict itself is not necessarily bad. It it just means that we've gotten on the wrong side of each other. And as I'll come back to several times, the way to avoid bad conflict is not just to give up. The reason we find ourselves in conflict is because our lives matter. And we need to invest them in things that matter. And when we are invested in something that matters and someone else is trying to take that in a different direction, then we have conflict. What matters is not that we have conflict, but it's how we handle it. And so today, what we're going to look at is the reality of that, that conflict doesn't go away, that the struggle is real, okay? It's going to be there for us. But today, what I want to do is, you know, A lot of times when I stand up here, I pack 14 hours of things into 25 minutes and give you a lot to think about because that's sort of what I do. Um, Today, I want to focus more on something that is really practical, on some basic techniques, some basic practices that will help us when we find ourselves in a conflicted situation, help us find ways to lower the temperature and move forward, okay? Not to avoid it. And not just how to smash everybody in your presence, because for some of us, that's how we handle conflict. We just bully everybody around, and the conflict resolves itself. But we want to find some more affirmative ways. So again, why, why do we struggle with this? Well, I think one of the reasons we struggle with this is there are a variety of ways that people navigate conflict. There's not one technique. In fact, if you tried to categorize it, it would look something like the cereal aisle at the grocery store, right? If you're just, I've stopped eating cereal, and then we started talking over dinner a couple weeks ago about what the best cereal was, which really isn't a question, right? So, so I, I'm, I'm just not judging you at all, but I'm, I'm curious. Um, If you were to ask the question, what is the best breakfast cereal, and you don't have to worry about whether it's good for you or not, 
And you don't have to worry about how you're going to feel later in the day after you eat it, okay? Just, just the moment of eating it itself. How many of you are going to raise your hand for Captain Crunch? Okay, see? And the rest of you? But here's the deal. One of the reasons it's hard to get out of conflict is sometimes we find out we're in a situation and we're playing by different sets of rules. That you may have one particular way that you think you navigate conflict and the person you're talking about may have another set of rules. So it's trying to play soccer with a rugby player or it's trying to play blackjack with a poker player. Those are gambling games and I shouldn't mention that because I'm a pastor, but that's, that's what came to mind, sorry. I watch a lot of TV, so I'm aware of these things. So that's how I know about it. Um, but oftentimes, that's part of the issue, is, is that we're playing by different rules. And you don't have time to negotiate those in advance. You just find out you're talking to somebody, you're trying to get past something, and you're making what you think are good arguments, or you're making your points in a good way, and they're just bouncing off the other person. And sometimes, in good faith, it's because... We're just playing by different rules. Sometimes there are no rules, and you, you may have been in conflict with people that if there was a way to represent their conflict style, it would look something like this. You know, you find yourself in a conflict, and I might not win, but I'm not going to lose, and I'm just going to blow this thing up, you know? And to be a bit more real here, some of us have, have been in settings. We've been in work settings. We've been in families with people who had that style. And so the very idea of conflict, of getting on the wrong side of somebody, terrifies us because we've never had an experience where it works out okay. So at the start, that's one of the reasons why it's, we panic a little bit when we find ourselves in a difficult situation is there are so many ways. Now, a lot of the ways we, we address this at the end is that people will say, well, you just got to back off. You just got to, you know, you could be together, you could be right. So don't worry about being right. But the thing is, is if being right didn't matter, you probably wouldn't have conflict, right? We don't have conflict over trivial things. Well, actually we do. Trivial things, it ought to be easier to move on from. But what I'm talking about are the things where it matters, and here's why it's hard to get past it. Because if you're doing this with somebody over something that actually matters, you can change the way you come across. You can back up. You can try to clarify the way you're talking. You can change the way you're talking. You can listen better. You can say, tell me your story. Let's try this again. But here's the one thing. As I was thinking about this, the one thing as I find myself thinking sometimes when I'm in a difficult situation and I've tried everything else, here's what I can't do. If I'm in a hard situation, I can't stop being right. You know? You can't stop being right. And again, that's where we get stuck, right? But what I'm talking about here are specific, what we want to talk about today are specific ways to get past that heated place and to move forward in situations that matter, that matter enough that you can't just say, oh, whatever, it doesn't matter. You know, Carl's Jr., McDonald's, whatever. They're both bad choices, right? But it, do, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter one way or another. This is for what to do when you're facing something that does matter, when you can't just let it go, and how to go forward. So 
we're going to look today at Philippians 4. And this is a situation that starts in conflict. And what we're going to see here is that Paul gives some very specific instructions on how to do it. So he begins talking to two of his friends in Philippi, in the city of Philippi. He says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. So most of the letters in the New Testament were written to solve problems. And there were two issues in Philippi. One was the main leadership in Philippi was rejecting Paul as a leader. And so the first three chapters of the book are him trying to solve that problem. The final chapter is two of his allies. These two women were part of Paul's leaders there in Philippi, and they were, they were kind of his representatives. And people, he had worked closely with them, and word had passed on to him that they had had a falling out. And so as he's finishing up the letter, he's tying all the loose ends together, he puts this word out to Iodia and to Syntyche. He says, look, guys, calm down. I want you to be of the same mind. Now, here's the thing. Both of them, if they're in conflict with each other, are saying, that's exactly the problem. If Syntyche would just get it together, we'd be fine, because I know I'm right on this. And Iodia was saying, or Syntyche was just saying, if Yodia would just get it together and stop being the way she is sometimes, we'd be all right. I want to be in the same mind. And they were stuck. See, the problem is, it's not that they weren't trying to get together, that they were stuck in their conflictedness. And so what he's going to do is give them some specific advice. Now, this one mind idea is something that is really key in Philippians. Earlier on in Philippians, in chapter 2, which for me is one of the just central parts of the Bible, he picked up, he first developed this one mind idea. He says in, whoops, there we go. He says, I want you to be like-minded, having the same spirit, being one in spirit, and of one mind. That this is what we as God's people should be aiming for. You know, this is what we in our families God wants us to be aiming for. This is what ideally even our work relationships would be like. That this is a great picture of people pulling together, people on the same page, people in harmony with each other, people who are at peace with each other. Because, and in, in the Bible, the word peace comes up a lot, but that's really what it means. It means harmony. It means people working together. It means everything flowing together. It's not just the absence of conflict. It's people flowing together. And this is a great picture of what it looks like like-minded, same love, same spirit, one mind. And he even gives some broader advice. For me, um, this is just great. I never miss a chance to share this verse. But for me, this is on a day-to-day basis. If you want to move in the direction that God is moving, if you want to move in the direction of the life that Jesus died to give you, and you're looking for practical things to do, this is a great way to start. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking after your own interests of each of you, but each of you to the interests of others. You know, so on a day-to-day basis, there is probably nothing better than doing exactly that, to put others ahead of yourself, to look to their interests, not your own. If you do this, you'll find yourself in conflict less often, and you'll find yourself on the track that God wants you to be on. But here's the deal. 
even though he had said this earlier in the book, there's something that happens when you're in the middle of a hard situation, when you're in the middle of a conflict. You guys have seen this happen? Your memory gets narrow. Your vision gets short. Your ability to hear goes down, right? And so these are great principles and ideas. But when you're in the middle of a conflicted situation, it's going to be hard to pull this off. And so what he has done, in we're going to go back to chapter 4 in a minute, is he's given a practice, a technique to follow when you find yourself in a difficult situation that you don't have to think about, you don't have to reflect on, you just do it. Um, he's going to give them three beats and one place to look at. So one, two, if you find yourself in a conflicted situation, this, this, and this, and then keep your eyes here, okay? Now, one of the things that helped me see this was for a while I was a... Um, high school track and cross-country coach. And track can be a scary thing to people when they do it for the first time, especially I, I was working with the sprinters. You know, one of the things we would say is in this sport, when you succeed, it's you, and everybody's eyes are on you, which for some of us is a good thing. Um, and when you fail, it's you, and everyone's eyes are on you. And some of our new athletes would get out there, and they'd just be terrified. And everything that we had worked on in training as soon as they stood behind the blocks, would just disappear. It would just, it would just be gone. And so for the athletes, we'd give them kind of three basic things to think about and then one place to look. So if you're if you doing the sprints, you would be feet against the pedals, hands slightly wider than your shoulders, and when the guy calls you to set, bring your hips straight up. And then there was a particular place you were supposed to put your eyes. And, and I think from years of doing that helped me see that I think that's what Paul's trying to do with his friends, Euodia and Syndicate too. They're in a situation where they're really wound up, and he wants to give them some very specific, very practical beats or things to think about when they find themselves, because there are things you don't have to think about. There's things you just have to do. And so we're going to look at that. So if you want to follow along, it's going to be up here. If you want to follow along on your phone or your or uh, your device, you can do that. If you actually have a dead tree Bible and you want to follow along, you'll find Philippians about 85% of the way through your Bible. It's just got Ephesians on one side and Colossians on the other side of it. So this is Ephesians 4. Again, remember the context here is that he has just asked Iodia and Syndicate to calm down, to get over it guys, you need to set this conflict aside or you need to get past this conflicted place where you are at because it's, it's bad for you and it's bad for all of the rest of us. And it, what's interesting here is if you have a paper Bible, it'll say something like various instructions or something like that for the passage we're about to look at. But I'm convinced that these relate directly to the conflict that these two women are having and that the, what seems to be unrelated is in fact completely related that these are the three things and the one thing to look at that he wants them to be able to do. So the first thing that he says to people that are in conflict, and, and that's what's interesting here, is it's not like, hey, knock it off. Or he doesn't shame them. Do you realize what this is doing to our community and all of that? But instead, he gives them something very direct 
and completely counterintuitive to do at this point. He says, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. And you can almost hear their objections right in the text. Rejoice in the Lord. Well, what, what do you mean, man? I'm in a conflict. Or, no, always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Yeah, but, but okay, that's great. But we got to get past this. I mean, we're in a really hard place right now. And rejoicing is what you do afterwards. He says, no, I'll say it again. Rejoice. So here's the deal. First step when you find yourself in a difficult situation is rejoice. Now, this is not thinking happy thoughts. This is not saying, oh, I'm sure they're a nicer person or all of this. It's not rejoicing. And don't, don't rejoice that you're in a conflict, you know. I've, I've heard people try to apply this and say, I'm just so thankful I'm in this terrible situation. No, you're not doing that either. <laughs> what you're rejoicing in is the fact that the Lord is present and the Lord is at work and that this conflict is not the only circumstance of your life right now. That this is not the only thing that is happening. Now, rejoicing in the Lord, what he's saying here, is a practice that we need to develop all the time. And, and notice everything he says here, there's some kind of qualifying word here. So here he says, rejoice in the Lord always. The reason is, is whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, if we have the eyes to see how God is at work there, how God is present, and just the beginning of the vision of how God can move through that, then joy is the only possible response for that. It's not, and it's not circumstance-driven. It's not just being happy. But it's making the conscious, disciplined, practiced decision to find the Lord's presence in your situation, to rejoice. Because what that does is it lifts your eyes off of the thing that you are so focused on to something else that is true and to something else that is real. Because again, when we're in a difficult, and this, this applies to any kind of narrowing circumstance. So if you're angry, if you're super hurt, if you're in conflict, if you're in pain, all of those things, don't they? They have that effect of narrowing our vision makes it hard to hear, makes it hard to see, makes it hard to remember. So in the midst of a world that's broken, in a place where things go wrong, the decision to rejoice is a very conscious and serious attempt to align ourselves with what God is doing. C.S. Lewis once said that um, joy is the serious business of heaven. And so what Paul is inviting Syntyche and Yodia to do here is exactly that, to develop a practice. Right now, when all you can see is this difficulty you're having with each other, get your eyes up off of the difficulty and rejoice in God's presence. Now, let me illustrate to you how this works long term. If you're in the middle of something right now, it's hard to imagine how you're going to get out of it. But to, to show you how this works, even without the magic and power of rejoicing, think back to the first half of 2013, okay? Just a year ago. Now, I want you to think of something that made you really upset, that made you maybe even really angry, okay? Think of the number one thing. Now think of the number two thing that made you really upset or really angry in the first half of 2013, just a year ago. 
I can see from your faces that most of you guys are having trouble with this. A couple of you are going, okay, watch. But, but most of you guys are having trouble with this. The, the reason is, 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 is we move on. Now, here's the amazing part, is that that thing that you were so stuck on a year ago, that you probably lost some sleep over, that you at the very least, if you're, if you're married to somebody, you abused your privileges as a spouse and probably talked to your spouse about it way too much than you should have. You can't even remember what it is. Now, sometimes that just happens over time. But what rejoicing does is it begins that process. It gets you unstuck from the offense. It gets you unstuck from the thing that you're troubled about. It gets your eyes up. It gets your ears open. It gets your heart open to what can be coming next. Conflict, any kind of trouble, conflict, suffering, hurt, narrows us down. To do the serious business of heaven and to open up and begin the process of rejoicing can begin to change that. So the first thing, first thing if you're a sprinter, feet against the pedals. First thing if you're a human being who finds yourself in conflict with another human being. I was going to say animals, but like we have cats at home. It's useless to feel bad about what your cats are doing because they're just going to do what they're going to do anyway. Dog, maybe you can get them to do something. uh, For the humans in your life. First step, rejoice all the time. Have a habit of finding how God is at work in every circumstance of your life. I'll say it again. Rejoice all the time. So that's step one. Step two is something that I think is really powerful, and I have only the beginning hint of how to do this. He says this. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. All of us have a go-to thing, or maybe a couple things that are go-to things for us when we find ourselves in difficult situations. For me, I'm a guy who knows things, and so if I'm in a difficult situation, I can usually appeal to authority and greater knowledge. I'm also somebody who can talk really fast, and so I will sometimes just talk really fast when I'm in a difficult situation. Um, And my, my third technique along the way when I find myself in a bad place is I am even better than articulating my point is I can tell you what's wrong with yours. Those are my go-to things. Now, here's the thing. I love his phrase, let your gentleness be evident to all. None of those three things are particularly gentle, so this is where I struggle with this, okay? But that word evident, when I'm in a, when you're in a difficult situation with someone, What do you want to be evident? That you're right and they're wrong, right? (laughs) Or at least that they're wrong. Maybe you you can be too, but certainly they are. Or the rightness of your cause, or or whatever it is. But, But generally, when we find ourselves on the wrong side of some folks, what we want to be evident is our preferred outcome. Because again, you know, we wouldn't be in a conflict if we didn't think we were right, if it didn't matter, so surely we're here. But what he is saying is that the best way forward from this is to take whatever you use and set it down. Now, for me, it's it's being a good arguer, it's being a good critiquer, it's being a knowledgeable person. Other folks, it's more the other side, that there's folks that know how to be wounded really fast, to look hurt 
really fast. It's their way of empowering themselves in different situations. You know, so some of us have kind of a passive-aggressive way of dealing with things. What I was describing for me is more of an aggressive-aggressive way of dealing with conflict. But some folks have kind of a passive-aggressive way that they will use, oh, I'm just so hurt by this, I'm just so troubled by this. And that one, let me tell you, just a free tip, that's especially effective in Christian settings because, you know, we're, we're all supposed to take care of each other. So if you can affect the stance of the wounded party, it sort of makes the obligation on the other person to give in to you. Okay? Either way, that's not gentleness either. Being victimized, acting wounded is not gentleness. What gentleness is, as best as I can get a hold of what he's saying here, because I'm almost like a colorblind person trying to talk about shades of red when it comes to this, is he's saying, take the thing that you bring best to conflict, that you rely on the most, and set it down. Let that be evident. Now, and again, it could be that you're really good at being the victim, and it could be that you're really good at bullying people in conflict. Whatever it is, set that down, that that's your second technique. Now, you're probably going to need to practice that. It's going to be a lot easier to do when the situation's a little less tense than when it's very tense. But he's saying, this is how you start to get, this is how you turn down the heat. This is how you get out of a difficult situation, is let your, let your gentleness, not the rightness of your cause or the wrongness of the other person, but let your gentleness, and for me, the best I'm understanding that right now, it's your willingness to set aside your strength in this situation. Let that be evident to the other person. Now, Here's the scary part about this, and, and you can see, Paul can tell it gets progressively scary as we go along. If I let this go, then my preferred outcome might not happen, you know, and that's, that's kind of scary. What's going to happen if, if I don't manage this situation in the way that I know best how to manage the situation? the outcome might not work out the way I want to. And then seemingly randomly, he says here, the Lord is near. When you're in a conflict, does it feel like God is near? Not so much, does it? When you're in a difficult situation, when you're angry or when you feel like you've just been victimized, it feels like you are alone in that and it feels like God is a long way off. And so it is helpful to just be reminded at those points where we particularly feel like God is absent and it is up to us to manage the situation, the Lord is near. So it may be scary, it will certainly be unfamiliar, and you may be worried about the outcome, but instead of the rightness of your cause or your preferred technique to dealing with conflict, instead of that being evident, set that down and let your gentleness be evident. So that's beat two. That's the second thing. So if you're going to project something, you know, when we're in difficult situations, we'll project a certain persona. Some of us, our, our body language will shift. Um, the way we talk will shift. You know, there's kind of an armor that you put on when you're in a difficult situation. If you're going to project something, project gentleness. His third thing goes precisely to the point that we worry. When you start moving off of what comes intuitively to you, when you move away from what comes easy, what, what seems natural, you get, as he says here, anxious. 
you get nervous. Because, again, this is not for conflicts that are trivial or silly that you just need to let go. This is for conflict where it actually matters how the thing's going to happen. You know, this is for conflict over things that really do, really do matter. And so his third thing is, is he's, he basically knows as you begin to rejoice when you want to be angry or, or uptight, and when you begin to develop the practice of projecting gentleness, of setting down your preferred way rather than going to your strong card, you're going to feel kind of nervous and you're going to feel kind of vulnerable. And so he addresses that. He says, look, don't be anxious about anything. Again, this is something that you can work on day by day because as much as we work hard to have control of our lives, there's always going to be stuff that's out of your hands. And if you're not feeling anxious about anything, I'm pretty well read. I could probably give you a few other things to worry about that will make you anxious, okay? There is always opportunity to be anxious. And so there is always opportunity to practice this. But when you're in the middle of something, you're especially going to be anxious because I'm already invested in this. What if it doesn't come out the right way? So if you have the practice of dealing with your anxiety, you're going to be able to better manage your anxiety when you're trying to get out of a conflicted situation. But here's how you do it. He says, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, looping back around to the rejoicing, present your requests to God. Remember we just talked about how the Lord was near in this final step, you go beyond, you express your joy to the Lord, the Lord is near, and here, ask him. Ask him for his help. Make your requests known. Let him know what it is you're troubled about. Let him know, Lord, I'm in this conflicted situation, and I think we should go here, and the person I'm in conflict with thinks we should go here or do this, and I can't see how we're going to get, I, if I'm wrong, show me but I think this is the better way, but I don't think we're going to get there. And I'm really bugged by that. I'm really troubled by that. Or I think these people are making a really bad decision for our group. And I'm, I'm troubled by that, and I'm kind of nervous about that. The answer is to tell him, Lord, I, I think this is a situation. Can you fix this? Can you be at work here? Be at work in me in any way that you need to be at work in me. But be at work in this circumstance. You know, some of the language he uses there, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, I think what he's talking about likely there is, you know, people in the first century had certain prayer practices. So when they said they were doing prayers, very often they were praying the Psalms of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. And um, petition was asking God for stuff. And then um, thanksgiving were, there were often other set prayers that they would say. I think, I think that's why he's saying these three things. The point here is to not go off, oh, what's the difference between these three kinds of prayer? It's, if you want to narrow them all down, ask is what he's saying. Ask him. So when you find yourself in a difficult situation, go ahead and present your request to God. Lord, I've, I've, been, as self, I've been as self-aware as I can be. I really think this is the best way forward. The people I'm connected to don't. Can you fix this? Can you either show me where I'm wrong or help them see it? But do you see what that does? Do you see how that shifts the weight off of you and you're no longer the key player 
in this situation? I think in the end, the two reasons why it's so hard for us to move out of conflict is one, is we absolutely do believe that we are the indispensable person in this situation. And if I don't do my part, this might not work. And the other reason we have trouble letting us go is we end up wounding each other usually. And there's a kind of, after what they have done to me, I can't let this go. But if we can focus on those three things the Lord wants us to do, to rejoice, to project gentleness, and then just ask him to be at work, here's what begins to happen. He says this, the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I especially like the word guard there because almost everything that I've talked about that I think he's suggesting here from this passage is basically ways of letting down your guard, of taking off your armor, of letting down whatever weapons that you normally use in conflict, of setting them aside. And that puts you in a very vulnerable situation. You know, this is, this is one of those weird paradoxical Christian things. The best way to be strong in a conflict, what I've just outlined, is to basically be kind of weak in the way that the world understands strength. And so that's a scary place that when you begin to trust God in that way, you are going to feel vulnerable. But what he promises here is peace. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like a lot of things in the gospel. You know, that Jesus defeated death by dying. That we best deal with offense by forgiving. That the greatest way to pay somebody back is to love them. Um, There's a whole lot of things in the gospel that seem somewhat backwards. And what he's saying here, too, is that this is something that doesn't quite make sense but that his peace is real and his peace will be there and will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. One other thing that's related to this, though, that is also should make you nervous is that in almost any circumstance we find ourselves in, God's best for us is almost never going to be a return to back to something that was before that when we find ourselves in a difficult situation, that God's next best step for us is almost always going to be something completely new. See, here's part of the good news of the gospel. You, I, all of us, the best we can do is manage our lives. We can, we can hold on to our resources. We can use them well. We can analyze. We can seek wisdom. We can think through it, but we are managers of our lives, and that's the best we can do. Some of us are really good managers. Some of us struggle with that along the way, but here's the thing. The Lord is not a manager in our lives. He was and is and will be a creator. The Lord is a creator, which means that when you find yourself in a difficult situation, And it could be conflict, it could be pain, it could be hurt. The good thing that God has for you literally doesn't exist yet. It's something that he is in the process of creating. And I don't know about you, but any kind of new thing is always a little scary. 
it's always a little nervous. And so this peace that comes from the Lord guards our hearts not only from the vulnerability that we're going to feel if we are following his directions here on how to deal with conflict, but it's also going to guard our hearts from the scariness that comes from the kind of disruptive good that God wants to do in each of our lives. So we all need this peace. We all need to be able to rely on this in this kind of way. So those are the three things that if you practice them, they're going to work a lot better. But if you find yourself in a difficult, conflicted situation, rejoice. Not over the situation, but over the Lord and His presence with you. Rejoice. Project your gentleness. Not your strengths, but your willingness to lay them down. And then ask the Lord for help. And then you need somewhere to look. You need a place to look. So with the sprinters, this was like the last step. I could get them to put their feet in the pedals. I could get them to put their hands in the right place. I could get them to raise their hips. But the one thing that was really hard for them is to not do what this guy is doing right here, which is looking down the track. So see his eyes there? He ought to be looking here. But instead, he's looking down the track. Now, why would, why would he do this? And just by the way, as a former track coach, the, every picture I, I found on the internet of a guy in the blocks was wrong. It, I, it's just like they're trying to be wrong. I mean, in this instance, if you know a track, this is not the starting line, this is the finish line. And he's not wearing spikes, he's wearing trainers. And the pedals on the blocks are next to each other, which you don't do. You want to have them, there's a whole equation you do based, based on your femoral length and the ratio from the top of your head to your iliac crest, but, which is boring. But <laughs> you don't have the pedals next to each other, okay? And you don't look down the track. But intuitively, you want to. If I'm a nervous 14-year-old about to run 100 meters in front of several thousand people, where are my eyes going to be? Where I'm trying to get? Where I'm trying to go? You need somewhere else to look. And if you have the right place to look, it's going to help. When we're in conflict, again, we're looking all over the place. We're looking either at just how bad it is right now or we're looking way down at the end, but we're missing a whole lot. And so, again, seemingly randomly, but I think it really fits when we're trying to live our lives as broken people among broken people. He gives us one more place to look. He says this. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever is pure, whatever's lovely or admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. But instead, where are our eyes? Where's our mind? When you're in a difficult situation, what do you do? You just chew on it over and over and over again. I remember a time when we were first married and we didn't quite have enough money one month. I just added up our checkbook at least nine or 10 or 11 times because I just kept thinking if I could just add it one more time, the numbers will come out better. And we've done that interpersonally. You just think back through a conversation. If I could just think about this one more time, I'll either figure out how I was wrong or probably how they were wrong in even greater detail than I had. Um, you know, that we just keep thinking over and over again. When you're in a hard place, your vision gets narrow, your eyes go down, your ears go deaf. 
And what he's saying is if you have the habit of looking elsewhere, of looking not at what's right, or not at, roll the tape back. That was a key point. I just blew it. What he's telling us is if you have the habit, not at looking what's wrong, but can develop the discipline of looking at what's right, at what's beautiful, then God is going to be so much more effective in how he wants to work in your life. So think about those things. You know, and I, I, I personally struggle with this. I mean, the way I'm wired, I am a good critic. I'm a, I, I write, but I'm a better editor than I am an author. I can tell you what's wrong and how your thing can be better, better than I can do mine myself. And so my eye just goes to what's wrong. I mean, it's just, it's just how, I'm, how I'm wired. And so this has been a really important word for me along the way. Because for me, I see what's false far easier than what's true. I, I, I see what's ignoble. I see what's, what's wrong and what's impure and what's ugly far better than I see the other things. But it's a dead end. And what he's telling us, you've got to have your eyes somewhere. I, if you're a sprinter, you want to have your eyes about 10 inches in front of the starting line. It lines your head up with the rest of your body, allows you to focus on all the other stuff that you need to do, and you end up getting 100 meters faster. If all you're focused on is the finish line, you're going to get there slowly. But if you can focus on the other techniques along the way, you're going to be, get there that much more effectively. And so that's what he's saying here. This is where you put your eyes. And again, friends, it doesn't happen automatically. None of this is intuitive. If any of what I just described to you today, rejoicing in difficult circumstances, projecting gentleness and not worrying but asking God for help, if this comes easy to any of you, please find me afterwards because I want to know why. This is not intuitive for any of us. And I know you're sitting there thinking, oh, look at him. I'll bet that's easy. No, it's not. This is not easy for any of us. It's something we have to practice. So three beats and somewhere to look. As Ajwa comes forward, we'll focus on, on this again. The three things. Rejoice. Project gentleness. Ask. And finally... Have your eyes in the right place.